Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 4th, 2016. The share ID for Friday, September 2nd is 9048. That's 9048. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Truth About Lies, The Greater Aspect of Our Disease, Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism. The big book teaches us we have a twofold illness, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is a bad problem. However, the big book teaches us we have a problem much worse than that. The big book says it's our main problem. We've got a mental problem. We've got a problem with our mind. As the big book points out, this mental obsession is our real problem. Our mind tells us lies, which take us back to that which is killing us. Joining us this morning to develop Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, and speak about the greater aspect of our disease, are four recovered compulsive overeaters. Our first panelist, Chelsea H. from New Jersey. Second panelist, Lisa H. from Tennessee. Alice M. joins us from Florida, and our fourth and final panelist will be Linda R. from North Carolina. So let's get started on page 30, Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, with Chelsea H. Thank you, Leah. Um, good morning, my fellow travelers. This is Chelsea H., recovered compulsive eater and drunk. Grateful to be on the line today so that I can share on this chapter. And this chapter for me really sets out the um, hard facts about alcoholism, it lets me know how futile it is and the fatality to be abstinent only without implementing the program of recovery. um, The other chapters before I get to this part gave me a lot of disturbing information. It, It told me about, first of all, I had an illness. That was a rude awakening. And what was worse, it was a permanent condition. And then... To add insult to injury, it was an allergy that would manifest itself into this kind of phenomenon of craving it's called, and it would only intensify the more that I ingested certain foods or ate certain ingredients or engaged in certain behaviors. I would never get any satisfaction. I would only get intensity and the need for more and more and more. So this chapter here really described the truth about what was going on, and it would add to me something that I didn't know that I had a greater obstacle to deal with, which was the defective mind. And it explains that while having that allergy is really a messed up thing, it's really something that's not a good thing, I got a bigger problem. Chelsea, you got a bigger problem, and it surfaces when I'm abstinent only. This obsession to finagle ways to start again once I stop going through all types of machinations but I didn't want to suffer the repercussions. So that dynamic is going on, and it consumes all of the thoughts. It obsesses my mind so that things like the tools are rendered irrelevant, telling me to write or journal when I'm in the throes and clutches of this obsession to find a way that I can start again without suffering consequences. I'm going to go walk on hot coals to try to get what I need to get rather than to deal with the fact that I actually am this thing and I have a problem and need to do something about it. Because the obsession is going to convince me to make the insane decision 
to take the first bite or first drink in my case because drinking and eating are inextricable with me because I use alcohol as my beverages with my meals. So thereby I set the cycle in motion. And then I'm told, too, that the greater aspect of this illness dooms me to continue this cycle of insanity, of succumbing to the desire over and over and over again or dying. That's it. Those were, those were the options by me not wanting to admit that I'm a real compulsive overeater and the obsession of the mind going untreated as a result. So it told me that I was in a specific class. The doctor's opinion pointed out that it doesn't occur in average drinkers not the normal drinker. I was told that, once again, here's more ego-deflating material. I am different. I'm not normal. A person with an ego like mine, especially one that's mired in selfishness and self-centeredness, which I would find out later, it says no person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Well, the obsession of my mind has proven that when I am abstinent and sober, everything is overruled. Whether I have the allergy or not is irrelevant. The lies come and they come. The lie is this time it's going to be different. It's going to be different this time. This time, Chelsea, you're going to be able to go to a drive through You're going to be able to order one meal, not order for a lot of fictitious people. And this time I'll be able to go through that drive through and just go home instead of stopping on the way and capping off this binge run with a couple of pizzas. I'm not going to be doing that. So this is the lie. This is the lie, the delusion that my mind creates. And I'll buy into it every time. And I'll say, you know what, this time you're going to just get a regular beverage. You're not going to go and buy a pint of Jack Daniels. So you're not going to do that. The idea says that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And it goes on to say that many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. So this chapter points out to me that until I really surrender to the truth that I'm a real compulsive eater, that I actually have this problem, I'm not going to pursue the solution. It says we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step of uh, recovery. So the notion, delusions that my mind manufactures, these lies, when I'm actively abstaining from compulsive eating and drinking, that, I, that this time I'm going to be able to, under somehow under my own management, despite mounds of evidence to the contrary, somehow I'll be able to recover control. Somehow I'll be able to do that. But it goes on to tell me that the delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. They're not playing around in this chapter. They're not tiptoeing around. They're laying out the hard facts. This is strong language. It has to be smashed. Humpty Dumpty will not be put back together again if I do this process right. Deluding myself that I've got control over this illness because I have moments where I can be abstinent, 90 meetings, 90 days, getting the right sponsor, calling in my food and stuff like that. It says there, that's brief recovery, and it will be followed always, always by still worse relapse. So all these rationalizations and justifications, blaming folks, on and on, this chapter proves over and over again that they're illusions and delusions. And because, of the, because I don't recognize that I can't see what I can't see, I'm doomed to believe the lie, whether I want to or not. I'll believe that I'm regaining control because I'll buy into the fact that I've had a lengthy bit of recovery. 
But my persistent delusions, this whole idea that I'm really powerful and I can control this disease, it's something that takes me down every single time, no matter what I throw at it, to try to get some kind of ease and comfort because I'm completely restless and irritable and discontent because all my efforts are failing. All my efforts, everything I'm throwing at it is failing utterly. And it's because I will not admit my powerlessness. I won't admit that I'm spiritually depleted, emotionally exhausted. That's the unmanageability of it all. I keep trying to convince myself with all these self-remedies and schemes to control the situation. I continue to believe the lie that I will recover control, being abstinent only. It says we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. And it goes on to say we are convinced a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. So that is my experience. No matter how many times I tried all these different things, they would end up in what it talked about here being pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization as the result. And I go to doctors. They talk about the doctors and science trying to deal with me as a compulsive reader and drunk. Doctors, they're baffled. I've gone to the doctors with serious conditions, over 325 pounds, and literally waddling in because my knees are just buckling under the pressure. Then I get the bad news that I possibly may have to take diabetic medication. What do I do? <laughs> I dash out to the nearest eatery on the way home from the doctor's, despite the fact that I've heard information. Here comes the deceptions and the delusions. Well, I might as well have that one final binge. This way I can start things fresh since I've gotten this bad news. So I engage in all these different forms of self-deception and experimentation to try to beat the game. I go with sugar-free. I go with flourless. I go with keeping busy type of behaviors. Then I go into getting the right food plan, the right sponsor, on and on and on. I can't have fried stuff, so I'm going to go with lightly breaded. I should be able to handle that. So my reluctance to admit that I'm a true uh, compulsive overeater and drunk my inability, my inability to, to recognize and to accept that everything I've thrown at this illness has not kept me from eating buckets of fried chicken or cups of gravy, just drinking cups of gravy, pounds of bacon, a, a host of industrial binges and purging sessions, all just a few of the different methods that I tried to use so that that way I could control the situation, that I can enjoy the eating and not suffer any repercussions. But they were vain attempts, like this chapter points out. Vain attempts that promoted the lie, promoted the lie that I was regaining control, therefore not the real deal. So these guys that wrote this book knew that I would be stubborn like this and I would be putting up all types of resistance to uh, say that I was the real thing. And they said, well, you know, when I was a drunk, somebody telling me that I was a drunk wasn't going to work. And they've had the experience, so they say, that, look, diagnose yourself. It says we don't like to brand any individual an alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. Well, if that's something that doesn't uh, float your fancy and you think that you can't start to eat again because you've got 90 days of abstinence, and you still think that you're not a compulsive overeater, 
Why don't you try another test? Why don't you try another test so you can see these things are lies? If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for a year. If he's a real alcoholic compulsive eater, well, very far advanced, there's a scant chance of success. And that was my experience. That was my experience. I had scant chances over and over again. And knowing that I could not control it by simply doing a year-long 12-step program and recovering, thinking that I was recovered and not going to be able to mess in the food again. So this chapter really illustrates, it smashes home, that these delusions have to be crushed, pulverized, no playing around. And this first illustration they give me to demonstrate that, to add emphasis, deals with smashing the delusion that somehow I'm going to be able to control the eating and drinking after a sustained period of normal time, abstinence, what I think is normal. Remember, it's a lie. And there's other stories in here which you're going to hear about which will corroborate what the book is saying. We've got a fine panelist here to bring you that. It says, because I'm a real alcoholic, I'm a real compulsive overeater, and I have that allergy of the, um, of the body and the obsession of the mind, remember, I was doomed to succumb to the desire again, no matter how long I was abstinent. doesn't matter whether it's clean abstinence or, or, or shaky abstinence. This is an example of the man of 30 tells me that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a compulsive eater, always a compulsive eater. Once a drunk, always a drunk. And I can identify with the story because I've been able to stop for years, even longer, losing 100 pounds, gaining 150, losing 100 more, leaving the rooms, feeling cocky and powerful. And like the man of 30 who out came the carpet slippers in the bottle, for me, out came the two-piece of the biscuit and a pint of Jack. Surely after doing a 12-step program for a year, I'd be able to control things. Surely after 90 meetings in 90 days, I should be able to handle things. Surely after having the greatest sponsor in the world, I should be able to handle things now. So this chapter here tells me, uh, sorry, full stop, you're wrong. And it paints a clear picture of the alcoholic problem and smashes to smithereens any hopes that I have of recovering on my own. Complete deflation of ego as I discover the truth about my intolerable situation, the seemingly hopelessness of my situation, those persistence, illusions, lies, deceptions that I tell myself to give me permission to succumb to the desire again. It says, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a power of your higher than himself, greater than himself. The chapter wraps up with that, and it comes into play here for me right now because what I need to do to stay stopped comfortably, there's nothing else I can do for relief but to turn to a power greater than myself. There's more about alcoholism is smashing my delusions. It got rid of it. It cleared away the lurking notions that I had that somehow, some kind of way that um, I would be able to somehow have you know, whatever I wanted to eat, I was told to act as if. I'm an agnostic, and I don't pray and stuff, but I was told to act as if. I spent many times praying before I ate only to eat more because I was so frustrated even over that. And this book tells me, you know what, if you really listen to the truth, you're going to get a new willingness. And as a result, this chapter ignited a sense of urgency in me to take action on that new willingness embark on a journey with somebody in whom the problem had been solved, 
and to examine the faulty ideas, emotions, and attitudes which had been the guiding forces of my life. They talk about that on page 27. So as a result of doing this work, the process requires to make the consummation, the full, it says on page 25, the process requires for a successful consummation that I do the work. And I am no longer believed now in these illusions, delusions, the lies, because I've, I've been absent for over three and a half years, I'm cured, or, or that someday I'm going to be able to eat cheeseburgers and fries in moderation if I, quote, unquote, act as if praying before I dig in. The truth of the matter is made clear to me as a result of this process. On and on, all those old distorted personal perceptions that I had of being all-powerful and in control of everything and everybody, even the food, turns out to be an illness, and it turns out that those delusions and illusions have to be smashed, and that happens as a result of what the book says, following a few simple rules. So, you know, if you're like me or you're an agnostic or if you're somebody who's weaving around thinking that they're really not this thing, I can testify that this program really does work, whether you believe in God, whether you don't, or whether you're like me and you think you're God. Having that spiritual awakening is the result of the steps. And this chapter specifically, and I'm grateful because after thoroughly pissing me off with the truth about the lies, Set forth here in this chapter, I've been set free to move forward with the rest of the work, and I'm grateful, and I thank my divine director, Didi, and I thank you guys at A Vision for You for the opportunity to live in and share the solution with you today. Pass. Thank you very much, Chelsea H. Continuing on page 33 is panelist number two, Lisa H. Good morning, um, fellow travelers. This is Lisa H., Grateful Recovered. Compulsive overeater from Tennessee. Um, for me, more about alcoholism is about identifying in. Uh, am I a real compulsive overeater? Or do I have that lurking notion that someday I'll be immune to my binge foods? From page 33, young people may be encouraged by this man's experience. They're talking about um, the, the man the previous about this. You know, he put down food for a long time um, or drinking, excuse me, alcohol uh, may be encouraged by this man's experience that they can stop as he did on their own willpower. And I spent decades thinking that I could stop compulsively eating with my willpower. I was convinced over and over again that something I would try would work. And I reached goal weight at least a dozen times. But then, as page 33 goes on to say, we doubt if many of them can because none of them really want to stop and hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist already required can find, will find he can win out. And there it is, that peculiar mental twist. That mental twist brought me back to the food over and over again. The mental twist caused me to do what I didn't want to do and not do what I really wanted to do. I had the idea that when the diet was over, I would somehow be able to eat everything in moderation. At the top of page 34, it says, as we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our own willpower. There's that term again, willpower. 
which means the ability to control yourself or a strong determination that allows you to do something difficult, such as lose weight. And that is a, that's a definition right out of the Webster Dictionary. And literally it had in parentheses, such as lose weight. So surely here it is. I should be able to marshal my willpower. Um, again, the big book is trying to reinforce the fact that lack of power is my dilemma. Marshalling my willpower was never enough to stop eating compulsively. The more I tried to control it, the more it controlled me. Continue on page 34. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. If he is a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remain sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry for anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a few weeks. Looking back over my eating career, there were times that I stopped eating sugar for long periods of time, months, almost a year, but that whole time I was white knuckling it, day after day, just knowing that one day I would su- that I would somehow magically not want it anymore. And oh, the resolutions I made day in and day out, year in and year out, trying to use my willpower to combat this disease. The obsession that I would find a way to become a normal eater. And an obsession is a thought that overpowers all other thought. All I thought about was food, what I would eat, how much I would eat, how soon I would eat, or when on the latest diet, what I couldn't eat, how much I weighed, how much I was exercising. It was truly a vicious cycle. Again, I had the idea that if I could get to a certain weight, I would be happy and and life would be great and fine and normal. Um, But from the second paragraph on page 34, it says, for those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is to stop how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. As a compulsive eater, I had lots of desire to stop and finally found that I could not quit on a non-spiritual basis. I had to find a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. This mental obsession was killing me. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. Can you identify in? I certainly can, because no matter how hard I tried or how bad I wanted to be a normal eater, I just couldn't leave it alone. 
still on page 34, how then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experience of the first drink? The book goes on to tell us the story of Jim. But first, I want to give you a few examples of my thinking. You have heard, all action is born in thought. And it was my insane thinking that told me this time it would be different. This time I could have just one. Um, I remember thinking, you know, I worked hard at my job and I was so tired at the end of the day. And I would think to myself, I deserve these sweet things or I deserve this big meal. Or if I was irritated or sad or agitated, I would think to myself, what can I eat to make myself feel better? The idea of having just one would predominate my thinking. And of course, I could justify my eating if it was accompanied by a diet soda. Or a big one for me was, if no one sees me eat it, it doesn't really count. My husband would often say, I don't know how you can have just one. Well, he only saw me eat one and never saw how many I ate in secret. On page 35, we hear the story of Jim. He had a lovely family. He was a good salesman. He was intelligent and everyone liked him. He had learned a bit about alcoholism and all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. This is a lesson for us. If we don't enlarge our spiritual life on a daily basis, we are doomed by what Dr. Silkworth called the double whammy, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. We can't stop once we start, and we can't stop from starting again. We know Jim lost his business as a result of his drinking. We know he stopped at a roadside place to get a sandwich, a glass of milk, and maybe sell a car. And drinking was not on his mind when he arrived. We know he was irritated that he had to work for a concern he once owned. And in italics on page 36, it says, Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Can you identify in this idea of just having one? For me, once I ingested sugar, the physical craving was set in motion, and I would go back again and again and again until the boxes and bags were empty. Once I set the physical craving in motion, I would finish Whatever was in the house, I would get in the car, go to the store for more of my binge foods. 
always picking up some soap or toothpaste so I wouldn't be judged for having candy, just candy and cookies at the checkout. Like Jim, I was aware of the mental and physical suffering that compulsive overeating always caused me. Always for me was the key word. Again and again, I couldn't, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop from starting again. Until I came to OA and here to a vision for you, got abstinent and started working the steps and immersed myself in this program of action, the mental obsession would always win out. I finally identified in and admitted that I am a compulsive overeater. Now 18 months abstinent and recovered, I have had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I have a freedom that I never thought possible. I don't think about food all the time anymore. The beauty is I don't even want it. And that is truly a gift from God. Of utmost importance now is the maintenance of my spiritual condition. So I'll keep working steps 10, 11, and 12 because my life and my sanity depends on it. Thank you all for trudging the road of happy destiny with me. Blessings to you all, and I pass. Thank you, Lisa H. Continuing in our text on page 37, Alice M. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Alice, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and bulimic. And uh, chapter three is my favorite chapter in the big book. Um, because it's, it was and is in these pages that I strongly identify with the delusional thinking that I could return to normal eating. And this chapter, as our previous panelists talked about, Jim, it contains a series of examples of alcoholics who continue to attempt to regain control of their drinking <clears throat> over and over again after periods of sobriety, some of them, despite their successive failures. They're obsessed with the idea that they can one day return to normal non-alcoholic drinking. And like these drunks, I too clung to the illusion that someday, somehow, I would be able to control my eating and my eating disorder, more specifically that as a bulimic, I would be able to control the frequency of my binging and vomiting, um, say limited to holidays or birthdays or this fourth Saturday of every month or when my roommates were out of town. That was the illusion I chased that I could control it. And the obsession, um, to, you know, the obsession to control my eating was that great illusion that I pursued into the gates of insanity for sure. And uh, what could have also been um, my death on two separate occasions. So in this chapter, in this section, I was assigned. Uh, we're asked to consider whether our continued pursuit of this illusion of controlled eating is not just as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first compulsive bite as that of a person with an insane passion for jaywalking between moving vehicles. So this is a part on page 37 where it talks about this imaginary jaywalker. He's not really a person that existed. It's just an imaginary, like a hypothetical. <clears throat> so real quickly, I'm just going to recap for you um, the office example of this, uh, this imagined jaywalker. So this man starts out lucky. And, and then at the end, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, explain how I identify in with this jaywalker. This man's, uh, he's lucky in the beginning. Um, you know, he's able to dodge cars, enjoy the thrill for a while, get to the other side, you know, without being hit by the cars. 
then he's hit a few times, gets some minor bumps and bruises, recovers from them, goes back out, racing in front of cars again. He gets injured a little bit more seriously, fractures his skull, breaks his legs. Then he starts promising to be more careful, maybe even considers stopping jaywalking altogether. But he seems to be unable to. He's obsessed with the idea that he can dart through traffic without getting hit. And as it states in this chapter on page 37, he is without serious or effective thought of what the consequences may be. And that was me too. Eventually, he loses his ability to work. Um, doesn't say why. I'm guessing perhaps because of his injuries or maybe because he is um, out in the streets running through traffic when he needs to be at work. Um, he loses his marriage, and finally he seeks help. He goes to an asylum, maybe what we would call today a treatment facility. Um, but when he gets out, he proceeds to run in front of a fire truck and breaks his back. And we would call this pure insanity. Nope. Well, my friends, <laughs> I was this jaywalker. I lived a life in my disease of food addiction and bulimia that was wrought with insanity, losses, and consequences. And yet I was still obsessed, still obsessed with the illusion of trying to control my eating. I still thought I could do it. And I just want to share with you some of my experiences as it relates to the insanity of this jaywalker. So in the beginning, yep, for me, it was a thrill to be able to eat whatever I wanted to eat in any amount I wanted to eat without the consequence of weight gain. I did this by gorging myself and then thrusting a spoon down my throat over and over again until I vomited up all the food. So I did enjoy myself for a few years, maybe three while in college. I started this when I was about 18 or 19. So about the first three years, it was pretty effective. You know, there was a thrill about it. I wasn't doing it on my own either. It was quite open in college. Then my first loss comes. So like Jim, he starts getting, or not Jim, like RJ Walker, he starts getting injured. My first loss, um, I lost an athletic scholarship um, because my bulimia was affecting the morale of the team and I could not stop doing it. So I lost my scholarship before my senior year in college of playing. Um, devastated. And it disrupted my, I had to withdraw from school and go to treatment for a month. So there's my first injury. Uh, when I return within the first 24 hours um, of coming out of treatment, I am binging and purging again. But determined, and when I went into treatment, and I did several times, determined that all I needed was a period of rest and inactivity, you know, just kind of a drying out period to slow me down. And then I would be able to go back out and control the frequency of my binging and purging. Um, that didn't work. Um, so I returned to school and ignored the reality, ignored the reality of what I was doing. Two years later, so again, and like the jaywalker, he goes back out again. Two years later, um, I'm grad school now with a great job on campus, still living in the illusion that I am in control of my eating. I, I, I think I am because I've got it down to just a couple times a week sometimes with my binging and vomiting. But I slip into a terrific relapse and cry uncle once again. Like, okay, I need to go to an asylum again, like our Jay Walker does. Clean me out, dry me out, let me get, let me regroup myself. You know, I'm not going to like work steps or get a sponsor or follow a food plan. That's not what my intent is in going into a place. I just need to get some time that I can come out and handle this on my own. Thank you very much. So I withdraw from school again. 
um, <clears throat> and um, this time I, I lose my I lose my job uh, where I was. I pull out of grad school, off the treatment again, number two, um, with the same illusion, you know. And I'll be a little more careful when I get out this time. So as it sounds like a broken record, it is. <laughs> so I do my time. I return. I return to um, where I was going to complete grad school. I relapse again within 24 hours this time. No ability to regain control. Sometimes when I would get out, I would have a little bit of time. A little, no ability. I fly into it full, full stream. Um, so time for a geographical cure. I leave that area of the country. I go to where I went through treatment. Sounds pretty promising, um, you know, because my injuries are starting to collect now. Bulimia slows down a little bit, uh, but I'm still pretty active. Okay, so that's like uh, our jaywalking. You know, it starts to break a few bones now. The, the consequences are starting to build up. Uh, then one night, a potential, potentially fatal accident occurs with me. Um, and because my gag reflex is getting weaker and weaker over the years, I have to shove the spoon further down my throat to get the vomiting going. You know, my fingers and spoon are coated with slippery saliva. I'm barely able to hold on to the tip of the spoon and it slips from my grip down my throat. In that moment, time froze. I thought I was going to choke to death. I panicked, shoved my hand down my throat, was able to grab a tip of the spoon, pulled it up and out, and in my panic, my throat contracted around the spoon and it cut the size of my throat, my esophagus, on the way up. I was alone behind the building. No one was around. No one would have found me um, until the next morning. I'm sure I would have been dead. Um, at that moment, any sane person would have stopped, right? And I did stop for a week because it hurt to swallow from the cuts in my throat. I had to eat very soft foods, mostly liquids. But instead of stopping after that period, because I still have the obsession, I still have the cravings, nothing has changed, I told myself I just needed to be a little more careful. So I switched to a longer-handled spoon. That was my solution. And it seemed like a really wonderful solution. Um, but, you know, it just wasn't as effective as, an, as, a, as efficient as a smaller spoon. So I returned to the smaller spoons, risking my life each time over and over and over again when I purged. Um, and like I said, without serious or effective thought of what the consequences may be. Um, obviously, a consequence would be that I would die. Um, that's not what I was thinking in the moment. So on through the years, you know, like the jaywalker, uh, my conduct continued. Um, I was still chasing this illusion that I could control this, you know, that I could eat like I wanted to eat, that I could binge and purge um, when I wanted to. I could control that. Uh, and and I, I would be more careful and maybe I would stop. So just that whole, my whole delusional thinking was that I could do that. You know, the illusion was that that was possible, that I could do that. And my delusional thinking was the, the thinking that, you know, that that, that was actually happening. Um, so finally, you know, some years later, another, another loss. Um, as a teacher, I spun out into my eating disorder really bad, lost my career um, like a jaywalker, lost another job, um, to leave my teaching career never to return, on and on and on. Um, so there were, um, there were five treatments in my history, and the first four, I came out, did nothing um, except go back to my disease. Um, 
my life in this disease parallels that jaywalker. I, I see it so clearly, just obsessed with the illusion that I can control my eating. And, um, you know, I'm, I want to end on a positive note here is that I have um, over two years of um, clean abstinence and working the steps. I'm recovered. Um, and I'm happy to say that I want to share with you that I have smashed the illusion that I can return to normal eating or control my bulimia. I no longer suffer from that delusional thinking that I can do that. I am without, or I am with serious and effective thoughts of what the consequences may be for me if I return to the insanity of my disease. And I have no doubt that one of those consequences is that I will be dead. Um, and it, it took a lot of work, a lot of work for me to help me smash the illusion and the delusional thinking. I had no idea of the work I had to do around that, the deep first step work that was, would be required of me to cut through the layers of denial and I had no idea of the high level of accountability and structure I would need to put into place around my physical abstinence and around, my, um, around the step work. So I am grateful. I was and am willing to do it all today. And um, I'm grateful that I take full responsibility for my recovery today. I don't do it on my own, but I do take full responsibility for it. And um, I'm grateful that I no longer am and the jaywalker darting out in front of traffic, thinking that I can make it to the other side unscathed. And I thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Alice M. And proceeding through the rest of the chapter, Linda R. from North Carolina. Good morning, Leah. Thanks so much for your service, and thank you so much for the opportunity to do service today. Linda R. recovered in North Carolina. And my pages are pages 39 to 43, more about alcoholism. And as I re read this and as I'm hearing, what this means is that it's my qualifications for being in this program. Do I really belong here? Do I identify and relate? Am I one of you? And this is what this chapter really, you know, calls out to me with. And, of course, in this chapter, there are three words that are mentioned. Delusion, obsession, illusion, and insanity. And they all mean the same thing, believing a lie, believing something that is not true about the delusion of my disease. And in the examples of Jim and Fred, it's over and over different verifications and validations that they have to believe. And um, my question is, can I see the truth about my food addiction? Was I insane? Excuse and me, Linda R. I'm going to, I'm sorry, so sorry to interrupt. I'm going to mute the line. Please press star one to come back in. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you so much. So in this segment, it talks about how Fred became convinced that he had the disease and that he finally surrendered to the program. Before that, in the doctor's opinion, as I read it, I, I, I also identified and, and I know that I, I always knew that I had the physical allergy of the body. The mental obsession took me much longer, just as it talks in these different examples of how the ego had to be crushed and the surrender to the disease. And in there is a solution. It gives examples of the progressive nature of the disease and how again and again and again, they had to be convinced, and I, too, had to be convinced before proceeding with the rest of the steps. 
The one thing I want to also share is that, you know, the um, principles of the program, this is step one, the admitting of the powerlessness over food that my life had become unmanageable, and the principle of step one was the hope. It also talks about the blank spots in the thinking and the built-in forgetters, the lapse and severity of the condition, and also these chapters give us clear-cut directions how we can recover and be recovered. So now Bill's examples of hitting bottom and coming to terms with the disease and knowing that his only defense must come from a higher power. So on page 39, it talks about how Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good, he has a fine home and is happily married and the father of promising children and of college age. I totally identified with this paragraph because I came from a home where the focus was on being educated. I was fortunate enough to get a college degree and have a career. I had a great life. It looked so great on the outside. I had a good job. I was married with three children who turned out to be productive members of society. And it just described to me how the outer appearance did not show what I was experiencing inside or what he was feeling inside. I was an addict with a two-sided personality and a spiritual void that led me to my food addiction. The outsides did not match my insides. This was a description of the misalignment with something that was inside of me, but I could not match it with the outsides. I also had a good personality and was liked by most people. So in, these, in this um, paragraph, that's what I got from that. And then on page 39, to all appearances, appearance, he is a stable, well-balanced individual. Again, I related to this too because I looked so great on the outside. Everyone thought my life was charmed. I, I appeared to be stable. I appeared to be well-balanced. And yet the truth was that I was really so unhappy and so miserable, and I was really walking on eggshells throughout my life. I didn't realize that I had the insanity of this disease. I something was not true, and I lived the delusion. I was less than whole. I did not have that wholeness and that spirituality as a result of working the steps. I also, on page 39, I related to, he was much, much ashamed of it. I have discovered that in my disease that it is shame-based. I, I grew up with a lot of shame, and I was um, really, you know, I, I couldn't really understand, like, why anything I ever did, I had guilt, I had shame about it. So no matter what I did, what I said, I would say words, I would feel upset, I would feel embarrassed. I had shame, just as it said, he was ashamed of the disease. And I also think it's because I didn't really get the disease. I really did not understand it until I really came into the program and started working the steps and got all the uh, information that I lacked. So I wrote, our disease is shame-based, and when I first came into the program, I had multiple bouts of binging. I had no clue what was happening to me. I remember my experiences in life with, with, with different types of diets and all the different remedies that I, I was seeking throughout my program, before my program. When I went to, you know, some of the well-known uh, food programs out there, I would go on the program and I would do so well. I would be great. I would get my chips and my diamonds and all the outside rewards. And then as soon as I would introduce my, my binge foods, I would be off and running, and I did not know what hit me, the triggering of the physical addiction. I was off running, felt like I was hit by a truck. 
I felt so ashamed, but I didn't understand. I was unaware until I came into program. I could not stop eating compulsively based on my own knowledge or intellect. And the convincing over and over again, as mentioned in this big book, that word convinced multiple, multiple times until we hit bottom. The research and development that I had to do and go out there. And again, when I first came in many, many years ago, I only worked diet with group support because I only, they only did steps one, two, and three in those days. And then I had to get my program from other, I went to a lot of open AA meetings, but by the grace of God, I had a sponsor that was uh, dual addicted and she was able to take me through the steps, through the big book. No matter how many methods I tried, no matter how many doctors I sought, no matter how many times I ended up in the hospital or had house visits, my anxiety, I couldn't stop using. I was also very anxious, you know, have anxiety disorder, and I was very much a feelings eater. So I really identified with that. On page 39 also, the doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. This was the denial of my disease. I didn't know how serious it was until I truly hit the bottom. I had to continuously repeat and repeat my defects of character over and over again until again convincing. My mind could not reason my way out of this no matter how hard I tried. I used to think that there was something wrong with me. I wasn't like other people. I longed, I longed to be normal, whatever that may be. I did not believe or know that I had, was a food addict. Page 40, self-knowledge could not fix it. Self-knowledge could not fix me. No matter how many self-help books I read, no matter how many workshops I took, no matter where I went, I went for years and years to different doctors, psychologists, seeking an answer, and self-knowledge could not fix me. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink. Subtlety, difficulty to describe unless I experience this personally. And again, yet again, over and over again, the experiences of the insanity, the delusion, the denial, and then also, you know, the surrender. Like, you know, there's an article, a well-known article that, you know, when I first came into the program, when you take the sponsee through, through the first 30 days, there's an article that is suggested that the sponsee reads, talks about the two characteristics of the compulsive overreader, the defiance and the grandiosity. Well, the defiance is also being described here by, you know, Bill in, his, in, in this chapter and Jim. It's not true that it's, and it says, defiance says it is not true that I can't manage my eating. That was the lie that I told myself every time I picked up over the years. It was the lie, the delusion that's mentioned in this chapter. I wasn't as far advanced as most of you fellows that I had been successful in licking my other personal problems. I had every right to be self-confident, willpower. Page 40. The self-rationale, the cockiness, and again, the grandiosity and defiance that are coupled with the disease. Page 41 talks about the blank spot, the built-in forgetter. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was it, nothing more. This, again, is that built-in together, the lapse in our thinking, the blackout, the blank spot, and again, the insanity of my thinking, the lack of my spirituality, the space in between God and my thinking. 
that's forgetting that I need to turn to something greater than myself at that time. The self-knowledge has me licked without any spiritual intervention. Happens over and over and over again until my enlargement spiritually. How many times did I do this? My thinking could not handle, could, oh, that I thought that I could handle that first bite. I'll start my diet on Monday. A vicious cycle of eating, not eating, overdoing, over-exercising to stop the feelings, the thinking that got me into trouble over and over again, the anxiety that kept coming up, the denial of my disease, that I needed help, the leading me to the surrender, just as is mentioned. Page 41, bottom. Off guard, no fight. I have an alcoholic mind. Step one, page 42. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help me in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I know then it was a crushing blow. That's what it had to take. I remember the moment that I knew that I had this disease, that I was licked. It took a very long time for me to happen. I used this with other aspects of my life as well. Different things in my life that I've used these steps with and the surrender. For example, not wanting to address certain physical issues and being in denial for years about it. Finally surrendering and getting the help that I needed. Of course, a result of working the steps over and over again. Again, a lifelong process and commitment that uncovers so I can discover new aspects of my disease thinking. Page 43, most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems hitting the bottom before I succumbed to the disease of the program. I was ready. I was ready to listen, going to a meeting, getting a sponsor, knowing I'm licked. My last conviction that I could do this alone, that I needed help. I needed the fellowship. This segment, again, offers hope. Step one, the principle. He made up his mind and he was willing to go through with it. He was willing to help, accept help from others. The ego was deflated. Lots of work to be done. Here he discusses spiritual principles which solve all of his problems. The doctor's opinion is manifested. His admission admission that he can use alcohol because of his mental obsession and now the solution to discard the old manner of life and use a higher power. Page 43. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Lots of work was ahead and had to be done. The spiritual approach. Very individual journey. Mine was of the educational variety. It took and is still in progress. The cultivation of something greater than myself is lifelong work. Continually growing, open-minded, and learning about God and my relationship with him. Constant companion. Without God, I am powerless and my life is unmanageable. Without the program, I have no structure or design. Without the concept of one day at a time, I have no boundaries to be of maximum service. God points me in the right direction. I must work this program to the best of my ability, perfectly imperfectly. There is room for growth. I have a slow study, yes, perseverance every day. The last sentence. His defense must come from a higher power. Today, the wholeness in this chapter to make me whole. Yes, to show that we, now, now I feel that on, in the next few chapters, we, I, would be, I was able to really cultivate and enlarge spiritually God, who I know so closely today, is my friend, my confidant. I can give you a hundred adjectives that have helped me rely and 
really be able to turn to a higher power greater than myself. And again, this has taken a lifelong process for me and a lifelong commitment. And that that's um, what I have to say, and I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Linda R. Thank you to all our panelists this morning for bringing the life, Chapter 3, based on your own personal experience with the lies, obsessions, illusions, and delusions of our disease. The panelists' contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now open the floor for questions that you might have. You can press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. This is Laura G. I have a question. Bria Fit from Edmonton, Alberta. Liz. Laura G., Bria, Bria L. Who else? Liz. Jody. Try again. I'm sorry. Liz S. And Jody E. Jody E. Who is before Jody? Uh, Liz S. Liz, thank you for your patience. Holly S. from Texas. Holly S. Suji. Suji. Okay, let's go with that group. I've got Laura G., Bria, Liz, S., Jody E., Holly S., Suji. Everybody mute, please, except for Laura G. Go ahead, Laura. Thank you. I'm being heard? Yes. Thank you. This is Laura G., um, compulsive overeater. Um I was hoping one of you, or uh, you're all, they were all just amazing. So I, I wanted to ask if you could just talk a little more about that when that obsessive thought, when that that lie pops in, how it you slowly got to, you know, how you started um, recognizing and halting it and making sure you didn't cross over. You know, and everybody's story was so brilliant, but that just that moment in time where it just feels like there, you have no other choice. You have to do it. How long in, in your in your experience of how it you finally it stopped or you did not cross over to do the behavior. Thank you. Thank you, Laura, for the question. Panelists, who would like to respond? Press star one to unmute panelists. Hi, Linda R. Please go ahead. That is such a fabulous question. Um, For me, it it took a very, very long time, you know, and again, it took a spiritual enlargement and a spiritual awareness. So, for example, most of the time, Linda, we don't hear you. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I got um, something happened. Anyway, um, as I was sharing, that's a fabulous question, and that is a question that um, took a very long time for me to become aware of in my recovery. And for me, most of the time, if that happens now, it's usually 
because I haven't really had enough quiet time or the pause. Before, it would just hit me, and then I would be like in the insanity, you know? I would tell myself the lie. So once the lie went in, it was too hard, the defense against that behavior or whatever it would be, the physical or the mental, would kick in. So now, if it ever does hit, or, you know, when it hits, I am able to immediately pause. Sometimes I have to physically get my body up and go into another room so that I could be in a safe, quiet space. And I get very quiet. That's sometimes I do that. Other times, like, for example, sometimes I might just make a phone call. You know, I I take some kind of an action when it hits. But most of the time, it's really, at this time, it just happens very naturally. The awareness comes in. It's like God tapping me on my shoulder. Linda, stop, pause, and just turn to me. So it's the spiritual, you know, turning to my higher power that helps me with the blank spots today. Because, again, I have a built-in forgetter. And never know when the insanity of the disease might hit me today. Thank you. Thank you, Linda R., was there any other panelists that also wanted to respond? Before? I'll respond. Yes. Can you hear me? I can. You want a speakerphone, Chels, or no? Yeah. Can you hear me, though? Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I wanted to respond because it took me many years. I've been around the room since 88. It took me many years to finally not cross the threshold and um, it was only done by me doing the whole work, by actually going through the whole process. So that way I would be armed with the facts about myself and I would have connection to spiritual resources that could guide me so that way I wouldn't believe the lie again. And I will have ceased fighting anything and anybody as a result of this work, even the food and even hand-wringing over how I'll be able to stay stopped. Because I'll be living in the solution, I'll get to practice. It says um, for me to continue and watch and set right any new mistakes as I go along. So when the things come up to put me in the position to where I'll make a mistake, trying to believe the lies again, I have a skill set now that I can turn to. But prior to that, I would cross the threshold no matter which things I tried, even if I had a long period of time where I was successful in not crossing the threshold. So many, many years, and it was not um, until I actually followed through with the entire process, had the experience, got a shift in thinking, because the process is done to me, not by me, and then I get to live in a space where I get to practice um, living in the same lane one day at a time with the help of resources, spiritual resources that are infinite, it tells me. So with that, I pass. Thank you very much, panelists. Thank you, Laura G., for the question. Bria L., your turn. Star one to unmute Bria. Uh, hi, thank you. Um, yeah, my my question um, would be, I'm, I'm currently in uh, um, an eating disorder program at the, uh, at the hospital, and they're giving me um, foods which I know when I'm outside of these walls, I will not be able to ingest. Um, They're my alcoholic substances. They are, um, you know, packages of peanut butter, these um, vanilla-flavored soy milks, these 
jams and honeys and these sugars. And um, I find myself um, unbelievably um, having these cravings after my meals. And, uh, you know, I told my dietitian, I told my doctor, I said, is there any way I can make up these calories with, you know, an extra thing of rice or, um, you know, a thing of protein, whatever have you. And they're saying, no, they're saying you have to get over your fears with these foods. You have to start reintroducing them. I'm not afraid of them. <laughs> I Rhea, love them. I, can we get yeah. to a question, Bree, please? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I guess my question would be um, when, when you have to, I guess when you have to have these substances that you don't want in your body, but I guess with my situation, I'm being forced to have them. Um, I, uh, I guess how would you go about uh, dealing with these uh, these cravings? Um, yeah, I guess I guess that would be I, that that would be my question when you're sitting there after a meal, going uh, with the obsessive thoughts. Um, yeah, that would be my question. Thank you, panelists. This is Alice. I'd like to respond to that. Please, go ahead. This is Alice, a food addict and bulimic, and um, I have a, a very big reaction <laughs> to what you're saying, and I would be happy if you would call me afterwards. We can talk about that. Um, um, no one, unless you're court-ordered, is um, needs to be in a situation. None of us are forced to eat foods that are um, that are addictive for us. Basically, I needed to go to um, facilities that would support the disease model of addiction and um, food addiction and 12-step recovery. And if I was not doing that, I was putting my life in danger. And that's all I have to comment about that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much, Alice. Thank you, Bria. I encourage you to take advantage of Alice's experience. Okay. Liz S., Please. Yes, I wanted to just ask because I, I think it's um, sometimes a, a rather amorphous term for me um, to any of the panelists. That what is for you uh, God consciousness? I often feel that I am supposed to be walking around constantly feeling God's presence, and I don't I don't mean that sarcastically at all because I want to feel God's presence in my life, but I get confused with that term, and I was hoping that perhaps you could clarify it for me. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Panelists? This is Lisa H. Thank you. Go ahead. Um Gosh, that's a great question um, because um, I think that, um, it, like the big book says, that the fundamental idea of God is deep down within all of us. What, whatever you call that God, whatever you call that higher power. Um, and also life gets very busy and life gets very loud. Um, and so um, that... God consciousness for me, um, I have to begin my day um, and I try to begin my day the same every day to, um, to be still, 
to to pray and meditate and to foster sort of that um, the feeling that God is with me um, during the day. Um, I also have to pause many times during the day, you know, because I get busy at work and and I get distracted, and so I am not I'm not all day every day. Um, feeling God's presence all the time. But, but so that's the, the part of pausing throughout the day. Um, sometimes it's just me walking outside and, and saying, gosh, you know, thy will be done, not mine. You know, show me what the next right thing is. You know, um, so, so I think that the way God consciousness is um, for me as a recovered person it ebbs and flows like anything else. Um, sometimes I'll be out in nature and I'll be on a retreat and I am feeling such a fullness and such a God presence. And then other times when life gets busy and loud, it's just um, not quite as significant. So um, I guess that's my, um, my thoughts on it, that it, that it can't help but ebb and flow, but we have to do the work to... Um, foster it. Thanks, I pass. Thank you, Lisa. Any other panelists want to address that yes. question? I would like to um, speak to that, please, for no. that question. Thanks. Um, yeah, I take you to the spiritual experience because that, in my opinion, has been what has uh, determined for me what that uh, terminology, what the presence of the power greater than myself ter- shakes out to be. I find that um, everybody's interpretation is valid. However you need to get to whatever it is, these are personal programs. And I'm finding that um, it says in the spiritual experience, with few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with as their own conception of a power greater than themselves. So this is an individual thing. So what I think about it or how I approach it or how I engage with this, it says, you know, it's it's a personal matter. So it would have no, maybe it may not have an understanding for you. It sounds like it's something that you're going to have to work within. You're going to have to do your own determination as to why you experience what you experience when you talk about the constant surroundings of your, of your power greater than yourself, which you call God. And it says, it goes on to say, most of us think this awareness, which we were talking about, of the power greater than ourselves is the essence of the spiritual experience. So the essence of it is personal to each individual. And it goes on to say, our more religious members call it a God conscious. So we have this pointing out here that people who are more religious tend to think in those terms because this is what they, they even have it in quotes, because it's something that's individual. These are inner happenings their personal relationships. So I would suggest that you really study the spiritual experience, and that might be helpful to um, bring you to other resources that can help you flesh it out more. Um, Pass. Thank you, Liz S., for the question. Jody E., your turn. Star one to unmute Jody. This is Jody E. Q. in California. Good morning. Thank you. So my question is for Alice specifically. Um, I'm curious about these treatment centers. I have never been to one. And um, were you exposed to the 12 steps, to the big book? 
it's not worthy of any benefit to you. Oh, um, sure. And again, I can answer more questions in depth afterwards. I went to five treatment centers. Every single one was 12-step based. So there you go. And I came out of every one um, with the intention of not working those 12 steps. Thank you very much. Um, so um, every one of them probably had a lot to offer me. Uh, if I was open and willing to um, accept it, and if I had accepted my powerlessness over food, um, and uh, that uh, the last one I went to, um, the fifth one about five years ago, I was desperate desperate, desperate, my life was on the line, and I was open and willing and humble. Um, so that is it. And if you want more of my experiences, I can share those with you um, another time. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. Thank you, Jody. Holly S. Good morning, and thank you for your service, ladies. Um, my question um, rests more right now in in um, in this 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 process of um, being 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 off my binge foods um, uh, behaviors, um, getting into um, working the big book um, as as never before. Um, it's all new though. OA is not new, and um, and I find that I'm camped out in a place where um, I, I keep hearing the, the line of uh, fear sobered me for a bit. And um, and I guess my question is, is it okay? Is it is it part of the normal process? Is there something more to come after that? That um, um, other than I'm not picking up because fear is keeping me sober. Like I know what's going to happen. I know what I'm going to do, and I know that I know that I know, and um, and I just wonder if um, anyone just has any thoughts um, about being in that place. Um, and thank you. I pass. Panelists. Linda R. Please go ahead. Hi, can I just ask the question, the person that asked the question, how far she is in her step work? Um, I am um, going through the forwards, uh, done Bill's story. I've read Bill's story and um, in uh, the doctor's opinion. I know that's a little out of order, but, but um, that's where I'm at. Okay, thank you so much for your question. What's coming to my mind is, you know, that when I first came into the program, I was really just, you know, focusing on the physical part of the disease. And I remember the, the phrase, you know, recoil like a hot flame. Like I knew I was so afraid to take that first compulsive bite. And, you know, then as I worked the rest of the steps, the rest was revealed to me that, you know, I can't live on a fear-based program. You know, fear is the root of my disease. So as I went through the rest of the step work, and, you know, then the process, you know, the building of my program and my relationship with a higher power, you know, the 12 steps of spiritual enlightenment so that I can find a power greater than myself that will restore me to sanity every day. Fear is insanity. So when I did my fourth step, 
I also, you know, uncovered my fears, my resentments, and, you know, different aspects of my disease that led me to steps 10, 11, and 12, which are the maintenance steps. So in answer to the question, I think that at the beginning of my journey, it was very, very, um, I relate to you that I was really fear-based, and that until I did the rest of the work and continue the work, the fear is removed, and then I, you know, the food becomes neutrality in my life. And I'm able to, you know, have my abstinence. Thank you. Thank you, Linda R. Any other panelists feel moved to respond? All right. Well, thank you, Holly, for the question. And Sue G., your turn. Star one to unmute. Good morning, and uh, this is Suji from Michigan, and I appreciate all the comments from from all the panelists. <clears throat> A common thread that that I've heard that um, I've struggled with is treatment, treatment centers, and I can remember begging my therapist at the time when I I'm bipolar, and at the time when I was either very depressed or or very high that, you know, isn't there a place I can go to work out the right medication or a place I can go for treatment to get... Um, at that time, I was accepting that I was a compulsive overeater, but I, I didn't seem to be able to have any um, control over, or I, I shouldn't say control, but I didn't seem to have any... Um, I wasn't there yet with the mental. I still thought that at some time I would be able to pick up again. And when I was sick, I, I did pick up. And so I was just wondering, um, you know, she would say, no, there, there isn't. There isn't any place, you know, unless you're bulimic and you're anorexic and you're ready to die. And I just wondered how you found someone who would authorize putting you in, how, how, you, how you found a place that, um, would take if you weren't an alcoholic, because I'm finding it. I found it very, very difficult, and so that's my question to anyone who wants to answer. Thank you. This Thanks. is Alice. Alice, go ahead. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but um, um, the reason I mentioned treatment so much throughout my story is that it is just a part of my story. There's no way I can avoid not mentioning it. It was a part of my past. I did several treatment centers. They, um, what, what happens for me, and this is about willing to go to any length and being desperate enough that my back is up against the wall with this disease in my throat is that I have to be willing to do whatever I have to do, including um, paying out of pocket, which I did every single time because insurance did not cover it. I was going to die. 15 grand was a lot cheaper than a funeral and put it in ruining my daughter and husband's life. So, um, there you can you know you can google there's there's plenty of treatment centers out there but it was my path not everybody needs that plenty of people that get clean and sober and abstinence and and are often and running in recovery uh without having to go to a place of care i needed to be in a safe environment where i was protected from myself where i was removed from the food um 
and and that is why I went because I couldn't um, do that on my own. And again, anybody who wants to call me afterwards, um, um, I can give you more information on that. Um, but again, that's just part of my story. I don't endorse any treatments that I went to. I'm not saying treatment is what you have to do and what is in, and what is what is responsible for my recovery today because it is not obviously from when you hear my history of how I how effective I made treatment centers for me and I passed. Thank you so much, Alice. Thank you. Any other questions for our panelists this morning? Star one to unmute if you have a question. Going once. This is Laura G. Can I be greedy and ask one more quick one? (laughs) Yes. Go ahead. Is there anybody else? Chelsea S. Chelsea S. This is Daphne M. And Daphne M. Okay. All right. Go ahead, Laura. Thank you, uh, Laura, compulsive overeater. It, it, there's a testimony in the big book that talks about that uh, correct path. Okay, Chelsea S., your turn to ask a question. Hi, I'm Chelsea, um, compulsive overeater. Thank you all so much for your shares. It really helped me. Um, I just feel like I'm at the jumping off point, and I'm wondering if all of you had, um, if you think it's necessary to have, like, a vision for you sponsor, or if there's somebody in my local meetings that'll take me through the big book, if you think that's enough, because I don't know what to do at this point. I'm kind of willing to do anything, so that's my question. That's a good place to be, Chelsea. Other panelists want to respond? I'll respond. This is Chelsea H. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I would suggest grab whoever is willing to work with you that has walked through this process and has recovered and had a spiritual awakening and do the work. It doesn't matter. Vision for You is, a meet, is an OA meeting. And it's for anybody that can help you that has recovered, get with them and do the work. That would be my suggestion. Thank you, Chelsea H. Anyone else? Okay. Thank you, Chelsea S., for the question. And our last question this morning comes from Daphne M. Hi, good morning. Um, This is Daphne, and I'm... uh uh, compulsive overeater. I'm also on a moving bus, so I'm sorry for the background noise to everyone. Uh, my question is, because I am, I have a wonderful sponsor who um, doesn't allow me to beat myself up about uh, where I'm at, and my thing is, I'm currently working on God is, either God is everything or God is nothing, and, you know, that part of the big book, and I was wondering... If anyone could speak to, you know, when that sort of light bulb came on, I worked at, uh, you know, I'm working in exercise every day about uh, where I see God, but, you know, the God is everything part is uh, 
you know, uh, really challenging. So if anyone could help me and speak to that, thank you, and I'll, I'll mute. Thank you. Panelists? Lisa H. Please go ahead, Lisa. Um, that is a great question, and I think that through this process of recovery, through working these steps, as as my mind became cleared from my what I call sugar sugar haze, um, and my my thinking was so much clearer. Um, every time I came up came to a, um, a crossroads um, or came to a difficult spot, um, I, would, I would seek what I call a divine diversion um, so that I wouldn't be faced with the food or, you know, be tempted by the food. Um, but the idea so that to me through this process and once I got to the spiritual experience, um, I was much more aware um, of uh, God around, you know, where I see God at work in the world around me. Um, and I think that's a great exercise um, to do. But again, it's, to me, it happens with time. Um, you know, every day builds on the next day. Um, I realize I just have today. So um, I, I think that that keeping on the path maybe um, for me was the best way to um, build on that, that God is everything and everywhere. I, I hope that helps that path. Thank you very much. I'll jump in here. I'm Chelsea. All right. And Chelsea. Recovered compulsive eater. I go to page 53 where that language is actually at. When it says, when we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade the, um, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else God is nothing. God is either is or isn't. What is our choice to be? And if you're at this part of the work, I'm assuming that you've already gone through all the other chapters and there's been a lot of information given to where it explains to us that this particular chapter is to explain to us the need for having a relationship with a power greater than ourselves, not that it has to be defined or anything, and that, in fact, as you look at the work in here, it turns out that the process, having the process will reveal all these things to you. This is really just in telling me that either I'm going to turn to this power or I'm not. And whether you don't have to define it or anything at this point, my choice is will I go on with the rest of the work? That's really what this part of the book means to me. And again, if I'm stuck at this part, I might need to go back to the preceding chapters to see where the information is that I quite haven't gelled. And maybe that's why it's an area that's uh, gray still. So maybe buttoning down that previous work might be helpful. Um, with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chelsea H. And of course, thank you, 
Daphne for the question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning, and of course, thank you to our panelists this this morning, Chelsea H., Lisa H., Alice M., and Linda R. Thank you for your time and sharing your personal experience and insights with all of us this morning. I'm going to close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.